Welcome to season three of the Alliance Theater podcast, an exploration of theater and the people who make it happen. I'm your host for today, Aniska, and we're going to be chatting with Tommy Martin, the lead guitarist of this season's upcoming play, Darlin' Corey. To diversify an entity, you must start at the roots, and often the roots are found in the artists, those who selflessly give to creating pieces of work and environments that are welcoming to those that fall outside of the status quo. Tommy Martin is one of those artists. With experience that spans almost every genre of music, think R&B, pop, rap, country, new school, and the classics, if anyone understands the assignment, it's Tommy Martin. With Martin set to man the guitar for this season's upcoming Appalachian modern-day myth, Darling Corey, the time seemed more than opportune to discuss his love of music and art. How that love can influence not just diversity on the stage, but in the audience, and what it means to be the cool guy. Well, hello, Tommy. Hello. How's how are it you going? Doing? I'm doing good. I'm all right. How I'm jingling a lot. Uh, they've been going all right. Actually, they've been going quite well. Mm-hmm. They've been going quite well. And, you know, once now, everybody's kind of settled in, and now it's just like repetition. You know, Trying to get it, it yeah. like, just perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially for me. I don't read music. You know, so it's like repetition for me. Mm. I, I have good memory. And so everybody's got charts and all this stuff, and I'm like, wow, okay. And you just, like, p- playing from memory. Yeah, I've been doing that my whole life. No. Do you think it's like photogenic? Like you see the music once and you capture it? Or if I hear it and see it once, I have it pretty mm. much. And then, you know, if I make little mistakes, I correct them here and there. But most of the time, if I hear it down one time, because I had to be that way growing up mm-hmm. learning, I never, I only know the notes on the guitar. So I guess we could put a pin in that and we're going to come back to it. Okay. How you process mm-hmm. music and how you play it. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's start with you just telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, okay. Uh, your time in the in the industry, your experiences, and um, kind of oh, wow. how you got tapped to play guitar for <laughs> for this play. Yeah, that's still almost a mystery to me. Um, I've been in the business. I feel like technically a lifetime because I started playing at like four and a half, and I got serious at like ten. I had to uh, play in my dad's church. I know it's a cliche, but he was a pastor. My mom was an evangelist, so I had to play in church every Sunday, practically all week, because it's a whole in his church, and they don't know how to go home. Um, uh, I started doing, actually, I was a theater major mm-hmm. in college, so I left theater, like, I left college, like, my third year, I didn't finish because I started getting work, started getting gigs and everything, and I realized I like guitar, I like, and I wanted to travel. Is that what you think stuck you, um, wanting to? Because I know for so many people, they find their experiences through through their artwork. Is that what yeah. you think kind of trapped you into the music? Yeah, it was because I wanted to see a lot of things. I wanted to go a lot of places, and I, man, I, if I go off subject, just stop me. Um, I'll wrangle you in. <laughs> No, I used to be a dancer. I was a dancer for a long time. I was a break dancer, actually. And one year, my troupe, we won a contest. And you're probably too young. It was a show called Solid Gold back in the day, and it was a dance show. And we won a trip to L.A. Mm-hmm. And that was my first, like, plane trip out of out of my hometown or whatever. And it bit me then. I was like, you know what? I don't want to stay here. 
I want to see everything there is to see. And that's when I started getting serious and moved to Atlanta. What, like late 80s, early 90s? Something like that. So you've been mm. here for for a good bit then. Yeah, you've been here for a enough. few decades. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, how have you, I guess, experienced the change in the scene and the culture of Atlanta? The music scene, you yeah. mean? Oh, wow. It's done a vast change. When I first got here, it was like, well, I wasn't a part of the scene at first, but, well, I guess I really was. I used to work in Sevenanda in Little Five Points. And this is when Sevenanda was, there was a place called Ragarama over there now, but that's where Sevenanda was. And all the shelves were wooden, and everybody that was a supervisor was a hippie and, you know, all that. And I kind of got introduced to the scene through my manager, a guy named Michael Laurent, because he knew Amy and Emily, the Indigo Girls. And, you know, I, I moved here with the band, and we did the typical thing. We all moved here together with high hopes. We all lived together. In about three months, we all hated each other, and everybody <laughs> went the opposite way. And I was the only one that stayed, me and the lead singer. We were the only ones that stayed. And I was doing music with some friends of mine, and Michael said the Indigo Girls were doing the Jesus Christ Superstar. And he asked if my band wanted to do it, and we did it and got on the record and met the girls. And that's kind of how I got introduced to the Mm. music scene, the local music scene. You know, all the 99X and all that stuff and everything. And that's pretty much how I got in it. I watched the scene develop. I watched it die. I watched it develop again. And now it's dying again. You know, it's cycles. So before we get to... Darlene Corey, because we're going to get to that. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's dying right now? What's the change you see um, in the culture of, of Atlanta or the music of Atlanta that you see that shift happening? Uh, I can hear people unfriending me now. Um, <laughs> actually, the best thing that ever happened to the scene and the worst thing was when record labels moved here. Mm. Because the record labels came and created a big outlet. And it also created division amongst people. Everybody started to compete because everybody wanted to be a part of the industry. And it kind of left the local scene, the indie scene, kind of like just, you know. And I think the reason it never really came back is because, well, I'll say LaFace Records was the first record label that came here and really like did something huge. You know, they they did, you know, L.A. and Face did great stuff here. And I was working for L.A. and Face. But I was also seeing how I was getting more and more pulled this direction. And I was doing less and less with my local band. Mm. Because you got to make money. You know, you got to make money and do stuff. And I tried to funnel, you know, as much of it back as I could or whatever. But then the city started realizing, oh, there's money in this. And they started dipping out. Of the local scene. I mean, when my band played Music Midtown, it was only local bands. It wasn't no Foo Fighters and stuff like that. That's ridiculous. You know, it was like all local bands. We played the Dogwood Festival. It was local bands and all that. And the city just got beside itself, mm-hmm. started feeling itself. And like, you know, and I guess cities got to grow. They got to do whatever they want to do. But it seemed like they always step on the music, mm-hmm. on the creatives. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily music, just creatives. They always put their foot on them. 
and move on. Mm-hmm. And then they turn around and go, oh, we need something to listen to. You know, we need something to do. I'm like, we're gone now, you know. And everybody was flocking here. And then I watched everybody start to leave. So I don't know who to blame that on. There's not really a blame, I guess. Mm. I don't know. I think that's why so many people are excited for Darlin Quarry is because of how connected to Atlanta it is. Um, it really is. Yes. Yeah. Like the players, the mm-hmm. actors, and even though the story isn't an Atlanta story, there's some there's that underbelly of it being like a real true southern story. Yeah. Um so how <laughs> did Tommy Martin <laughs> get pegged but also how did you fall into like yes i will play guitar for this this appalachian myth story (laughs) well let's start here i'm from louisville kentucky so i listened to everything growing up there there was no boundaries you know especially once i got to like 16 and in my house you couldn't listen to secular music Mm. so once i got to 16 I started listening to everything. I went to private schools, my whole Catholic schools my whole life. We're not Catholic. My mom just wanted me to have a good <laughs> education. Most of my friends were white. And they were turning me on to all this different kind of music. You know, they started, have you ever heard of Aerosmith? Have you ever heard of Led Zeppelin? And I was starting to hear all this stuff. And so as a player, when I heard something cool, I wanted to learn it. So I would learn cartoons. I would learn commercials and you know, the first record I ever bought was, I'm probably dating myself, but the first record I ever bought was a 45 of the Beatles called Day Tripper because I thought the guitar sounded so cool. And I just kind of like understood music. Now, fast forward ahead, I know Christian and Brandon from back in the local days. You know, I think I was working, it was either Brandon or Christian one, we were working in Avondale Estates studio right as he was starting Sugarland. And then he moved to Nashville. Brandon used to play with a friend of mine named David Ryan Harris. You know, every it's a really small clique of people. So everybody knew and my phone rang or my email dinged and they said they needed truly actually what they said, they needed an African American guitar player. I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> Um, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's some R&B and soul or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I found out what it was and I was like, okay, yeah, sure. And then I think Christian, have you ever played a mountain dosimer? I was like, no, but I'm not scared of it. You know, cause I would never say no to anything. Mm-hmm. I, I'll jump in and try it and I'll learn it. So that's kind of how I got the call from Brandon, you know, Brandon and Christian asked for me and which is a, big honor to me because they've done so much yeah you know and, yeah they really have and i'm just i'm not a punk i'll try anything <laughs> yeah. that's good to know <laughs> um so i think for for people who are who don't see music as like this space that you can touch everything right mm-hmm. it's like it's either r&b or yeah, rock yeah, yeah. or i mm-hmm. think some of those people if they were to look at this band and see the lead guitar player and see someone that looks like you (laughs) and someone that has your repertoire, like the people you've worked with in the past and the list is so long and it's Mm. so diverse, but some of them might just still go, hmm. 
who's this guy playing this guitar? Who's that this playing the mandolin? Yeah. yeah. It, I get it. I see it. But normally what happens is they'll it, it'll be that kind of, hmm, let me wait and see. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they'll hear and they'll be like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's authentic. It sounds right, you know. I wonder what you think that says about the trip, especially in a, in a theater space, which is um, inherently a white space. Like mm-hmm. We don't see too many people of color in these spaces. I wonder what you think that says about the traditional theater space and the casting practices that most theaters follow. And if you could kind of touch on how you think it's possible to change that thought process that people have when they see people like us in those spaces. I, I think it's good. It's, it's good because it shows that somebody's looking outside. Somebody's checking outside the box. They're not necessarily going, okay, we need, you know, they're looking for the best person for the job instead of the blue person or the black person or the white person. They're looking for the best person for the job, you know. So if you're the best person for the job, it shouldn't make a difference, you know, what 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 it is or what color you are, what nationality you are. And I've been away from theater so long. Mm. Excuse me. It's hard for me to, I'm just kind of seeing how it runs again. You know, I've done done a whole bunch of musicals and all that stuff, you know, high school and college and all that. And then I dipped it all. I let it go. But it's all coming back now. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's a whole nother world. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't really know what is driving certain practices until I get inside. I learned from a martial arts teacher. When you're in a room, just be quiet and you'll learn. So I listen a lot. I'm always paying attention and listening. And then I think, oh, there it is. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and leave, you know. <laughs> but it's hard to describe because, and I think just traditionally, people of color, let's well, just say black people, they haven't necessarily gravitated to the theater. Mm. And I remember seeing, to me, theater was like Avon Ailey. You know, that that's, that was like people going to the black theater or if it was a, a black play, you know, but then it, I gradually started seeing things get more open and diverse. What a, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar was amazing to me because everybody was in it. Mm-hmm. It's like every race, gender, color, and they were all doing the same thing. And I was like, wow, that's cool. I did it in college. And so that's why when they asked me to be a part of it with, you know, the resurrection with the Indigo Girls, I'm like, sure, I'd love to do that. And we kind of did some touring with that. But that's what theater should look like to me. To me. And it's probably why I don't run theater. But, <laughs> you know, that's what it looks like. No, I believe that. Actually, you said something. Um, sometimes you sit in a room and you just listen. Yeah. And I would pay a nice penny to sit in a room and just listen to how you... How oh, you, man. <laughs> uh, for, for real, like how you process things and how you adapt to things and how you adapt to music specifically, I, I think that'd be priceless. You, you have to respect the music first. If somebody calls you and asks you to play, he said, have you ever played a mountain dulcimer? I knew then what kind of music it was. So there are certain rhythms and what musicians call chops to certain styles of music. You know, I can't, I can't come in and play my Prince licks. You know, I had to remember when I was listening to Chet Atkins and Roy Clark, when I was young watching Hee Haw, and I have to go, okay, those are the kind of chips 
charts that I need for this job, this particular job. And then somebody will call me something else, you know. I had to have a, a swagger when I was working with Outcast. I had to have a swagger, a southern swagger, kind of a, you know, because it's kind of freelance. But then if uh, when Madonna called me and said, I need you to play a nylon on my record. Do you play a nylon? I said, sure. Never owned one in my life. <laughs> so I ran around and looked in every pawn shop I could think of. And I went and I made myself learn it. It's just you have to you have to adapt and you got to understand that, you know, it's not about you. You have to serve the song. You have to serve the music. You have to say, I think that's why I've been able to work so long mm. because I respect what's there. I got my very first big tour because I played the part, the guitar part. I didn't go in there and show off and flag. I can, but that's not what it called for. I played the part. And when you play the part, you serve the music and you get calls. Y'all can't see her. She's looking at me like, this is an enigma. He's not real. <laughs> We're still just trying to figure it out, you know? Yeah. Like, And I think we, we there's still so much for anybody who's listened to you play or anybody who's listened to music in general. Mm -hmm. There's still so many parts of it to figure out. Oh, so your personality, who you are, how you live, how you came up. You know, I know cats that are way better than me, but haven't gotten this far. Mm -hmm. And... You have to pull back and look at yourself and go, why am I here? One of my quotes is, everybody is where they are for a reason, and it's normally them. So if you honestly look at yourself, you go, oh, I see where I'm messing up. You know, it just all of, the, all of that plays into being a creative, period. Just being a creative. I wonder how different it is for you to be in this setting where it's not just music right where it's mm -hmm. words and i mean all music has a storyline and a plot but this is a little bit different you yeah. know it's like words it's a stage it's scenery yeah. it's this story that we mm -hmm. kind of know but nobody knows about yet how different is, is it for you to play in a space like that um compared to what you've done in the past it's actually more relaxing because most of the time i'm off stage they've toss me on stage in some scenes you know but most of the time you're off stage and you're in the pit and you don't have to interact with the audience you know you almost don't have to like turn on you have to be heard mm -hmm. you have to make your presence be heard by just playing you know they have to go oh they have to feel an emotion or whatever you know when I'm doing like stadium tours or whatever they have to see you and you got to move and you got to you know get people to come into what you're doing by your move by just by vision and sight playing comes into it also but mainly by vision and sight so this is kind of it's kind of relaxing you know do you think the um the the playing that you do now do you see it as essential to kind of setting the mood for the story setting oh, the mood for the play definitely I, it couldn't be any other music it, it has to be because it's going with the era and the time, they, they actually, some of the actors, well, all the actors, they have a dialect coach who teaches them, you know, don't necessarily say, you know, here you might say her, uh, you know, over, you know, and that's the way we talk Kentucky. I, it took a long time <laughs> to get that out of me, and now I'm putting it back in. But it, the music fits the theme of the story of Darling Corey, like to a T. You know, Christian did an amazing job. Speaking of KB, <laughs> KB, 
Um, you really have worked with some amazing people. Like, I am not going to um, give away my FBI skills, but <laughs> wow. I did some. I did some hunting, Uh-oh. and the list is the list is long. But there's so much variety. Like you mentioned, Madonna. Mm. Um, there's Justin Bieber. Mm-hmm. There's it's it's just like night and day the people that you've worked with. Yeah. And I think what that speaks to is one you've mentioned it already. Your ability to kind of like adapt and adjust to whatever is needed, yeah. but also your versatility, right? And I think so many people would be wondering what's the main takeaway that you have had from your experience with all these different artists if you could put it into just one word what's the main thing that you've taken away from having such a diverse um musical background from having a diverse hmm um i i don't know if i could sum it up in one word you just have to experience life just living just living, you know, we're all some type of a chameleon where, you know, you know, you have your work voice and then you have your at-home voice. You know, I remember my mom being on the phone talking to someone. I could tell by the way she talked what kind of person it was and whether it was a work-related or, you know, just, no, oh, sure, I'll make sure he's there. Oh, sure, he'll be there on time. Then she'll get out of the Boy, if you don't get over <laughs> in here, you know, it's like you have to be a chameleon and be able to, immerse yourself and let go you have to be able to let go you can't hold on to well that's not me Mm. you know you can but then you peg yourself and you get stuck right here and they go they'll call you when they need that Mm. but if you're a chameleon they'll call you if we get tommy we know we'll be all right you know to do this oh we'll be all right to do this you know and artists and writers and producers the most they want to feel is security and relaxation. If they don't have to worry about you, they'll call you all the time. They'll call you all the time. A, a guy said, a producer said to me, he said, dude, you're like good car insurance. And I was <laughs> like, wow, I've never heard it put that way. He said, I don't worry at all. You're just like good car insurance, you know. But that's what you want to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my main takeaway is just, you know, be good at your job, but be true to your job, mm-hmm. be true to what you're you're saying. If if I can't do it, I'll tell you. If they'd have called me for this and I'd have tried to be like, "Yo, KB, I can't do this, bro." You know, I got a Rolodex. I'll tell you who to call, but I'm not gonna do it just to make money or just to say I was a part of it. If I was sucking at it, I'd get out. Mm. Yeah, I think that's probably what makes you the cool guy. <laughs> the cool guy. Yeah, is. I've heard. No lie, I've heard. Man, that's what it, that's what. <laughs> what is cool? What is cool? Yeah. I think cool is a guy that can understand the culture that he's playing in, adapt to a, sh- a play like Darling Corey for the Alliance <laughs> Theater, and then leave here and go post up in a coffee shop and learn another <laughs> instrument. I think that's a yeah. cool guy. Okay, I'll accept that. Good. <laughs> So long as you accept it. Yeah. Um, so throughout the process of, of Darling Corey and kind of getting prepared for the show, mm-hmm. you said you haven't done a theater play in a really long time. It's yeah, been a, a while. Yeah. How's it been adjusting to, especially not, like now, you know, when we have all these um, 
um, different protocols in place because of yeah, the yeah, year yeah. we've had last year. Yeah. And not just because of like health reasons, but because of like um, because of the, the year we had last year on a social scale and all the things that mm-hmm. have happened in the past year. How do you see yourself? adjusting to the cast and the crew of this play for this theater in this city? Well, um, for one thing, they're extremely careful. I appreciate that. Everybody's masked up, you know, at rehearsals and around. Every now and then they may do a run where they take them off, you know, but they're tested regularly. And you kind of just got used to, I'm used to seeing masks now, you know, and it makes me feel good to know that they're being this safe. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of relaxes you or whatever. Um, over the year, over the past, you know, COVID and all that kind of stuff, because I actually had it and got over it, and it's not a joke. <laughs> I mean, that's the first time in my life I was ever like, I need to put some things in place, mm-hmm. you know, like that. But um, coming out of that, and it, it kind of changed the the environment of music, like I do a lot of e-sessions. Mm. You know, people will email me the music and I'll do it and I'll email it back. You know, that's the new studio, you know, kind of thing. And to actually be around people to be able to interact, I like it. It helps a lot. It helps a lot better. And it wasn't a lot of preparation, learning the music, learning the music and kind of trying to, and knowing about the culture of the music that helped a lot knowing about Appalachian and that time I got to thank my uncle George for that. He was a guitar player. He was a preacher in our church and I used to be a toddler and I would just sit and look at his fingers all day, all day. And he taught me and he turned me on to Chet Atkins and, you know, West Montgomery and all this kind of stuff. He just, whatever it was. So just understanding that there's a certain thing that goes with every type of music, man. That's all. I feel yeah. that. Yeah. Do you think that this story and the players in this story, I guess, what does it mean for them to be so interconnected to the city, specifically to Atlanta? I think the, the southern aspect of it, because it has, it has a roots thing, of course, attached to it. And everybody, when they think about, you know, roots, they start going down the, the map this way toward southern culture whatever and because the base of you know all music goes backwards to some root somewhere you know it's it's all going to eventually go back to you know either you know big mama thornton or you know blues or appalachian mountain and that's kind of how i look at it like well you know i'm still playing the blues really it's just it's got a different twist on it and i think atlanta in a city like this has a different twist on it. Mm-hmm. That's why it changes so rapidly, you know, and that's why sometimes it resists change. You know, if it's too up here, they'd be like, no, nah, man, that ain't us. Mm-hmm. You know, so they kind of resist it and pull back or whatever because they want to keep something. I mean, yeah. good grief, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that you've been playing since you were about four. Mm-hmm. Um, and up until this time, you've played so many different um, genres and you have, like you said, you're a chameleon, so you could kind of play anything. And we wonder if that has ever forced you to kind of question or um, have internal conversations with yourself about what that says to your mm-hmm. artistic integrity, if you could just 
Like if someone calls and asks to play the blues, you'll play it. If someone mm-hmm. calls and asks to play rock, you'll play it. What's that? What, do you think that says anything or has it forced you to question anything in regards to your artistic integrity? No, because uh, I'm artistic. So if you're artistic, you do have integrity. There's certain things that you will pay attention to, but you want to create art. So if I want to create art, I think that goes back to when I said, if I can't do it, I won't attempt it. And I'll be honest. I'll say it. That's out of my range. Mm-hmm. You know, no, no, you can do it. You know, it's out of my range. Um, you have to have. Wow, that's a, that's a real long question. <laughs> <laughs> because, you, of course, you have to have artistic integrity. Like in my band, I have a rock band called Three Five Human. And I'm very conscious of what we sing and what we write because first of all it's an all-black band with a black female front and that's kind of like an anomaly Mm -hmm. and it kind of gets passed over but you have to have something that that drives you you know when I get finished like I may go play a gig or a show or something that I can't stand but I can't keep it. Mm-hmm. I can't internalize it, you know, because once I've committed to something, I'll finish it. You know, I have to work on my my poker face sometimes, you know, because friends are telling me, dude, you got You just look like you hate it. And I'm thinking I'm looking pleasant, you know, <laughs> but I can't lie to myself. You know, this is, this is terrible. This person can't sing. Or, you know, this is terrible. These songs are awful. And you have to have something that drives you. Mm-hmm. So when I go home, or when I go to my coffee shop, 90% of the time I'm listening to Tom Waits. Mm-hmm. You know, 90% of the time I'm listening to Chris Cornell, you know, or I'm listening to something I've heard overseas when I was traveling, I, I, you know, Calexico, whatever, because that's the artistic part of mm-hmm. me that has to keep being fed in order for me to come out and go, yeah, sure, I'll come over there and play a jazz gig with you. I feel you. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, I mean, in order to be an artist to that extent, you know, because some people don't, some people don't feel it as much, like their artistry stops. I think that's it the does. difference between being, between um, practicing an artistry and mm-hmm. being an artist. And you have kind of jumped, not kind of, you've leapfrogged that fence. You yeah. are an artist. Does that extend in other ways? Like, do you make your own music? Do you um, create in that way? Yeah, I make my own music. I've got tons and tons of songs. I've done a solo record that I've had for like a year. And, you know, my friends and everybody, like, what are you waiting for? But it's kind of like I do it for myself. And then I'll let somebody go, oh, you know, oh, check this out. You know, it's like you get a new toy when you're young. Oh, check this out. Like, oh, you need to show this there, but no, it's mine. Mm-hmm. You know, but you got to let it out, you know. So it's, it, I, I do create my own music. I've done scores. I've helped score some indie films. I've been in some major films. I was in, you know, movies. And I have one coming out with Bo Bridges. I was in that movie. And I did some stuff with Danny Glover. You know, movie called Almost Christmas. I'm in that movie. And, you know, there are little parts Mm. here and there. But all of that is because I have to continue to grow. Mm. 
have to continue to be creative. Because if you don't, you'll get stagnant and you'll start to hate what you do. Mm. And then you'll be looking elsewhere and going, oh, what's over here? Like, I figured by now I'd be retired with a vineyard in Italy doing <laughs> bad paintings. That was my <laughs> that was my goal. That was my goal, you know. But it's coming. I'll work on it. You have to just keep feeding the artist. Yeah, you, you have to because if you don't, you know, I, I was a nine-to-five person when I was mm. a teenager and all that. And when I got a chance, I ran at top speed because it's just, there's nothing artistic about being in a nine-to-five job. I'm sorry. You know, it just isn't. Um, I think you just kind of like settle and mm-hmm. placate yourself. Well, this was going to be, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I saw that. Let me say that. I saw that in my hometown. You, you grow up, you get a job, you get married, you have some kids, you get the white picket fence, you retire, and that's it. And I have friends that are doing okay. They're happy, you know. But they're always like, oh, where are you at today? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, wow. I saw where you're on such and such. And I didn't do that for that reason. I did it because I'm artistic, mm. you know. Probably not too far from autistic, but uh, I am artistic. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, this is for sure my last question. <laughs> Until you say something else, and then there's another question oh, because man. it's it's endless. It really is. Um, for someone who's done what you've done and experienced what you've experienced. Mm-hmm. How do we, or what is something we can do to ensure that our audiences, the people that come and see our shows, are able to have those experiences through our art and not in the typical sense of what our audiences typically look like? Mm-hmm. Basically, long or short, how do we diversify our audiences so that the people who typically wouldn't have had the outlet for those experiences can have them? Um. You have to be honest with an audience. You can't, you can't cater something. The minute you start to cater, you start losing. The minute you start listening to the radio and trying to figure out what's happening now, and you do that, you're 10 years behind mm-hmm. because everything moves so fast. If you do what is in your heart, in your soul, your audience will find you. And they'll always be happy when they come to see you, as long as you give them an honest performance. Mm. As long as you give them what's truly, if you don't, you know, fix it up and mix it up and try to, you know, I'm going to do a little bit of this for this part of the artist. No, just put it out there. You know, you just just let it go. You know, John Michelle, just put it out there. He wrote crap on walls, man. And his audience found him. And he never deviated from what he did in the beginning. Until he passed, mm. you know, when started to, when you start to deviate and you start to cater to the audience. No, they come to you because of what you do. They come to you because you're doing something that touches something in them or something that they wish they could do. Or you open some kind of portal for them to be happy about something, whatever. So if you change and become them, they're like, well, hell, why would I come here? You know, why would I listen? I can do that. You know, I can sound bad to myself. <laughs> Just kind of be honest, and peace is a real big part. Mm. I want my guitars, I have an inscription on this that says, protect your peace. I really believe that. That's why I'm a coffee shop guy. You know, I, I like my peace. 
when you're peaceful and you can think your art and your thoughts, you know, even something like if you're working in a nine to five, your thoughts will grow. You can understand. My mom said to me, I don't care what happens to you. If you get out there, as long as you got a roof over your head and a place to lay down, you can calmly think and figure out your next move. Say, I don't care how small they are. That'd be the greatest thing in the world. Just be able to be peaceful and you can figure out your next move. So if you're peaceful, you'll do something and somebody will connect with it. Mm -hmm. If they don't, they don't. I think a lot of people would do well to sit in a quiet room and just have you speak for a bit. Oh, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been real.